Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please welcome Sydney Lopez. Time. I never watched them. You don't? I don't think I've seen, uh, it's got to be minimally 20 years since I've seen that. Seen Serpico? Really? Yeah. It's an amazing production, and, and one of the things that is remarkable about it is that to me it, it, it has all the strengths of your filmmaking, but it's, it's, um, it's not a showy film. You don't, almost don't notice the style. It's, it, um, and you're not, a, you're not a flashy director, but you're very clearly, it's very clear what your films are, the, the way that they capture. New York City, their performances. Could you talk a bit about your approach? Well, I always feel that if, uh, if you see the technique, it's bad technique. My kind of movie making, as opposed to, well, for want of a better example, I don't know how many of you have ever seen, what was that French movie with Anouk May, everything shot on a 600-millimeter lens? Um, a Man or Yes, okay. that's Thanks. the one. Uh, you see, that kind of movie is just silly to me. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's a question of uh, really what you believe in in terms of, uh, in terms of work. I'm not right. Uh, there are terrific stylists in movies, and sometimes you hit movies that are just so beautiful uh, that that's enough. They don't have to say anything. It, they don't have to be clear. <laughs> they don't have to be about anything. But they're just terrific to great, some of them, in some instances, great movies. I would say, for me, uh, Fellini is that kind of a director. Uh, he, was, he always struck me as a little boy looking for a mama, <laughs> and, uh, which is what all the pictures to me seem to be about. Mm. And uh, yet the unbelievably, unbelievable beauty of what he did was deeply moving and had a resonance that allowed you to really just investigate everything. It just meant a lot. It's just a question of uh, mm -hmm. what kind of worker you want to be. And clearly one of the things that, that you're most interested in your work is working with actors. I'll just read something that Paul Newman said when we um, honored you back in 19, 1985, almost 20 years ago. Sidney's allure lies not in his technical proficiency, which is enormous, nor in his nose for good stories and dialogue, which is legendary, but in his real, actual, fearless, frenzied love for actors. And, and this movie is a great example of that because it's really Pacino, that character and that performance that totally carry. Well, you know, there's a, I get a lot of credit on things like that. Oh, the performance you drew from so on. So You never draw anything from anybody that isn't there. Uh, we're not alchemists. And Al is one of the best actors we've got, period. What he picks, the, his choices are so brilliant and original. So the best thing you can do is get out of his way. You are making a film that's topical in a way. I mean, the Watergate hearings are going on at the time you're shooting this, the Knapp Commission had happened. But you focus on a character study. I mean, this is a, this is a portrait, and you, you decided not to get too wrapped up in the plot or statements. Well, I, th I think the only way you're going to understand the situation is to understand the man. Mm -hmm. um, 
my admiration for people like that is boundless. They, they, uh, it's a kind of bravery that uh, it's just insane to me. <laughs> uh, I did a picture, uh, another picture, two story uh, about a, a detective named Bob Lucy, uh, Prince, Prince of the, the City. city. Yeah. And um, I don't know how he did that. Seven years mm-hmm. with uh, four of those years with three marshals with him around the clock uh, outside his door. And what it meant to uh, to just, there was no way to take a cab ride. There's no way to take a bus ride, get in the subway. Life is over, as you couldn't possibly know it. And even when he uh, was moved to another state, the marshals were always there. I, uh, funnily enough, the the way out was really by uh, by making a movie mm-hmm. about it because uh, by then th- then it became too dangerous to kill him. <laughs> Did you uh, meet the real Serpico? I mean, yes, uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah I, met, like? I met Frank, yeah. and and uh, he's a fascinating guy. Uh, I always had a feeling about them. I don't know. Al and I talked about it. I don't know whether Al agreed with me. I always felt he was a rebel, period. That uh, he would have behaved that way if he'd been a baker. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> that anybody above him was yeah. his automatic enemy. Thank God he was in the work that he was. <laughs> but, uh, you know, ag- again, uh, Bob, Bob, Lucy, said a fascinating thing that uh, I believe it's true because Bob said it and I believe him. Speaking of corruption, he said at any given moment, 5% of the police force is hopelessly corrupt. 5% will never be corrupt. And the other 90% will go by the atmosphere in the department. And by that he meant, who's police commissioner? Mm-hmm. Starting with that and filtering down. And I always thought that was fascinating because it was... Uh, as it applied to Serpico's situation, it was a terrible time. I mean, something like the Knapp Commission was not reported lightly, uh, it was not organized lightly, nor did they function lightly, and of course, nor were there any results. Uh, <laughs> you know, for, th- for three years, people kept their noses clean, but that was about it. Yeah. What uh, about for you? I mean, what about making a film? Uh, how, I mean, that seems like an act of courage, too, to be making a film. They love it. Uh, everybody wants to be in the movies. I think they all want to direct. Uh, 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 the, the, there's a uh, no. The, it was amazing because, you know, I, on, on this movie I was shooting precincts, uh, working precincts, working hospitals, and um, not only no problem, loads of help hmm. in every way, and you know between. Uh, this and Prince of the City and uh, and Dog Day and so on, people said, oh, you've done so, so many anti-cop movies. The fascinating thing I've found is that they don't th- think they're anti-cop. Hmm. Um, they not only like them, they feel terrific about them because, as they've said to me over and over again, that's the way it is. That's the mm-hmm. way it really is. Because I'm careful not to m- make it melodramatic. I, yeah. I don't over-dramatize it. I don't put a score in with crashes and, uh, <laughs> and things. And, and, um, and they, they understand that. Serpico never ratted out any friends because he didn't have any friends. 
Uh, but Lucy ratted out the guys that he worked with for seven years. You said in your book that you that um, you're sort of ambivalent about the character, um, somebody who was such a pain in the ass and always kvetching. This, mm. The character Pacino played, but that Pacino made you love the character. It, yeah, uh, and you sort of show his odd eccentric side at the same time. His eccentric side and his pain <laughs> in the ass side. Yeah, uh, he. Uh, it was very sad, you know, because Al hung around with him for about a month before hmm. we started shooting. And uh, I, I came on the picture late. I replaced hmm. another director. So I only had five weeks of preparation. Right. No, no locations had been picked. Nothing had been done. But I knew one thing. I, I said to Al, you know, Al, don't get too close to him hmm. because he's going. And Al said, what do you, I said, well, what are you, you're going to whack with him watching from the sidelines? You know? <laughs> and, of course, he saw the point of that. And when I told Frank, I said, Frank, you know, I, I can't have you there during the shooting or the rehearsals. Uh, it would just make everybody, including Al, so self-conscious. Yeah. And I broke his heart. Hmm. Uh, he walked away. He, he hasn't talked to me since. Oh, really? Yeah. So you never got his reaction to the movie? or I know I was there when he saw it. Mm. And uh, I figured I owed him that much. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, he liked it. <laughs> uh, one of the things that really gains over time is the uh, portrait of the city itself, the locations. You're everywhere in the, in the city in this film. You're in Queens right nearby in Astoria. You're in Brooklyn, the Bronx, Manhattan. Could you talk a bit about the location scouting and your working in, in New York? You know, you decide when you're starting a picture not only what it's going to be about, but the way you want to tell that story, which is a very simple way of that terribly complicated word they keep using called style. Uh, a style is how do you want to tell the story. The great thing about New York is that it allows you, staying totally on location without even going into a studio, to pick really any style you want. The, the, uh, the city is capable of so many different feelings, so many different moods, so many different statements. Even today, I've got 700 locations up here that I've never used. You know. <laughs> What's the location scouting process like? Do you Boring. <laughs> uh, you drive around in yeah. the car, and you go, this block and this block, stop yeah. here. Get out, look, make a note of it. I'm back in the car, and, and you know, it's just, uh, it's, it really is boring, except except that it's exciting when you start getting the accumulation yeah. of what you've looked at. Um, there's a point in a picture when you're working on it where you want, you hope, it doesn't always happen by any means, uh, where you hope it's going to start telling you. And one of the terrific things about um, location looking is when it tells you hmm. I mean, if, if I have to change things, uh, I, just go on, I just go on to another location. Mm. I don't want to change it. I want mm. what's there to work mm. for me. In almost every instance, any location I've wound up with allowed me to do more than I had in mind originally. Yeah. Gave me more than I thought about. And I'm guessing this goes also for costume. I don't know how much you remember the selection of costumes or hats, but it's a great part of this film, and you've talked about the importance of costume to for an actor to find his character. Well, Anna Hill Johnston, who did, <laughs> did this movie and so many of my movies until she uh, retired, 
one of the joys of her was uh, she also had the ability to accomplish the style of the movie without you ever seeing the style taking place. Hmm. Thank God it runs a long time so you never see the style taking place because <laughs> it changes over the, over the time of the movie. Mm-hmm. But there, for example, after uh, long discussions, Anna Hill came up with a tri- an incredible solution. And I'm thrilled that nobody has ever noticed it, which is that as we get into the further and further courtroom scenes, people appear blacker and blacker and blacker. The clothes Mm. all get darker, darker, Mm. until finally in one courtroom scene, everybody's in black, Mm. except you never see it happen. It struck me that the lighting also gets, that you use shadows more throughout the film. Well, you know, uh, there's a limit to your control on location. Mm -hmm. Uh, Interiors, you can do whatever you want. But on exteriors, obviously, you're, you're, it's going to be dictated by sun or no sun and so on. Um, there was no deliberate attempt to do, to do that in the picture. There was an attempt, as you can see with Al, to uh, get him darker and darker yeah. as we went. Yeah. Uh, you made three films with Dee Dee Allen. I just want to ask about working with her. She's a brilliant, brilliant editor. Uh, did a Dog Day Afternoon in the Wiz with her. Um, if you could talk about that. Well... What's there to say about Dee Dee? Uh, and I'm assuming you're very involved in the cutting process. Yeah. Uh, they I'm can't, assuming you're very involved in every part of the they process. They can't take yeah. the sticks off without me being yeah. there. <laughs> um, but Dee Dee is something else. You know, it's fascinating. Uh, I don't know how many of you are film students or uh, get the more esoteric magazines and so on. And people are always talking about editing. They're only three people who know whether a f- movie was well edited or not. The director, the cameraman, and the editor. Nobody else knows because <laughs> it can look wonderfully edited, but God knows what was left on the floor. It can look terribly edited, but it was shot so badly that it's a miracle that the story even makes sense. <laughs> so y- you can't know that. I remember once I've forgotten what picture I did. Uh, th- a review came out and it talked at great length about Dee Dee's editing and I said it, that they could see the Dee Dee Allen style in editing. Well, the person who would have thrown herself off the Empire State Building would have been Dee Dee right. because she prided herself in becoming the editor that that particular director wanted. Uh, she worked totally different with George Roy Hill than she did with me. She worked totally different with Warren Beatty than she did with either of us. Mm-hmm. She became whatever the picture and the director uh, were. And where she was brilliant was that if I had uh, an image of the way I thought the scene should be edited, she could recreate my intention better than what I had. Hmm. But it was my intention that she divined. Hmm. It, wasn't, it wasn't out of left field or something that she wanted to get into the movie. She saw what I was after and she could get it better than I could. Hmm. Which is pretty hard. <laughs> How much of that work had to do with uh, 
performances, looking at different takes and picking best performances or with more structural things? Well, they, the, the uh, selection of which, perf- which take for performance, that happens very early. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll sit in the rushes and Didi will be sitting next to me and uh, we see the two takes or three takes that we've printed and I'll say take one or take three or take, yeah. you know, and that'll be the selection. And the only reason we'll ever change it is for for a technical reason. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there's been there's been a lot of talk now, looking back about the 1970s and this period in the early 70s being a, you know, golden age or very uh, um, amazing moment in filmmaking. And you've as somebody who's worked from the 50s till now, do, do you see it that way? Were you more able to make more provocative? interesting films? Was there an openness in this early 70s period? I don't think so. It seemed to me that the same crap went on then as does now. <laughs> uh, it's um, the problem now is a very serious one, which is that it's all corporate, that uh, every studio is owned by something so much bigger than the studio. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous, isn't it, that, uh, that Columbia Pictures has re- rescued the Sony Corporation. Right. Uh, the Sony Pictures of that year provided the profit margin for Sony, which was losing money with all of its iPods and wh- wh- whatever they whatever they do, their television sets. Uh, in fact, by now, after the sale of armaments, the biggest factor in the balance of payments in the United States is entertainment. Hmm. Uh, armaments number one. Entertainment number two. That means books, records, movies, uh, DVDs, etc. But but that's how enormous it is now. I mean, that today that a picture uh, can gross one picture can gross a billion dollars. Uh, as the guy said in the movie, that's serious money. <laughs> well, one of the things that said about the seventies is that there became a point when Hollywood really started looking for blockbuster movies. But do you feel that that Hollywood was able able to make more modest films before that? Not at all. People's memories are short. Mm -hmm. Uh, As you may know, the terms under which a picture plays in in a theater or with a theater chain Mm -hmm. are all negotiable, always. Mm -hmm. Uh, It can vary everywhere from the studio getting 10% and the theater getting 90% to the studio getting 90% and and the theater getting 10%. And all of that's open to negotiation on every picture. So that, for example, when I was growing up, when I was a kid, if you you wanted your picture to play Radio City Music Hall at Christmas, they got 90%, you got 10%. Because they didn't need your picture. They had the Rockettes. (laughs) And this is serious. And and, uh, what it did give you was... Uh, it gave you advertising over the rest of the country, mm-hmm. as seen in Radio City Music Hall. Right. But, uh, but the theater itself was that uh, powerful a factor in the, in the release and the distribution of, of a movie. So the chaos today in, in exhibition uh, is no worse than it, than it always was. Uh, I went to see Capote the other day, and in an eight-theater complex, mm-hmm. it was playing in four of the, four of mm. the theaters. Mm. Uh, you could see the picture every half hour, <laughs> which was wonderful. Uh, but uh, 
that's rough on the other pictures. What was Dino De Laurentiis like as a producer? Uh, uh, great affection for him. He was Ghana's, and he was charming, and had great taste, was a good cook, um, and loved movies, loved movies. We had a terrific time on the movie up until I'd finished it. Uh, I didn't want any music mm. for the movie. And I did not, in those days, have final cut. Dino wanted music. And I knew that if I didn't do something about this, he'd take it back to Italy, and Nino Rota would lay in a score like wall-to-wall carpeting. Right. <laughs> I found out by sheer accident that a wonderful composer and a great political activist by the name of Theodorakis, a Greek composer, had just gotten out of jail. The Greek government at that time was a fasc- pretty much a fascist government, and he had served over a year in jail. And so I figured, well, what the hell he needs? He's got to need money. Uh, and I found him in Paris 24 hours after he got out. He f- left Greece right away. Mm. And uh, I found him in Paris, and I told him the truth. I said, uh, Miyako, uh, I don't think the picture needs a score, but I'm terrified of uh, what happens if I don't put one in, because then Dino will put one in. And uh, I thought, this could be marvelous for you, because I know what's in the budget, and you, you can pick, your up, pick yourself up a fast 75000 bucks here. And he said, I'm taking the next plane. (laughs) And he arrived in New York the next day. His plane was late. I was waiting for him up at Technicolor in the screening room. He arrived about 2 a.m. We ran the movie. He loved it. And he said, you're absolutely right. It shouldn't have music. However, I was hustling him, and he was hustling me at the same time. It was charming. Uh, (laughs) From his pocket, he said, took out a cassette. He said, many years ago, I wrote a little thing that uh, might be right for the movie. (laughs) And uh, I said, oh, great, great, great. He said, but there's a problem. He said, I I wasn't expecting this this movie, and so I've arranged to make a tour in America Mm. with a small Greek orchestra, and we're going to be gone for about four months. (laughs) He said, so I won't be able to be with you in the cutting room. I won't be able to sit what we call spotting session, which is where we sit at the uh, movieola and we go through the movie, and I say, we should have music here, and he says, I'd like to try something here, etc. We call that spotting. And he said, so I can't, be, I can't do a spotting session because I'm leaving the day after tomorrow, and uh, I can't be at the recording session. <laughs> In other words, he was going to... That was it. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I was charmed by it, and I said to him, I said, I don't think you know him, Nikos, (laughs) but that we have a wonderful arranger here uh, by the name of Bob James. He's basically a jazz pianist, but brilliant musician. And I know he'd be honored to work with you. And so I can do the spotting session with Bob, and as he does his arrangements, I'm sure Dino would be happy to uh, fly him out to whatever city you're in with your band. And he, he's a, he was also a great pianist, uh, James. 
and he'll, I'm sure, play you the arrangements, and you see the, and that was the way we worked it out. Uh, I, the reason I wanted Theodore Rockus so badly was, number one, he had j- just come off a tremendous hit with, uh, on the Julie Dassin picture, Never on Sunday. Uh, that was his. And uh, I knew that he had great uh, panache in Europe, uh, a solid left-winger, and... Uh, served a jail sentence. And I I knew that Dino would be so flattered that that he would do this picture. And as you see, I think there's about 14 minutes of music in the whole movie. Okay, let's uh, take some questions from the audience about this or other movies. You talk about the efficiency of the way you shoot. I work with two cameras and three cameras when I can. The basic rule of thumb is, with a shift of more than 15 degrees, you have to relight. Well, suppose uh, you're shooting. Dave and I are having this conversation. There's one camera here and there's one camera there. Well, we're shooting 180 degrees. Uh, However, if I keep us static, if it's going to be him in his chair, me in my chair, I shouldn't have to sacrifice too much in lighting quality. Maybe a a fraction, but really not not even that. Because uh, the the problem is solved because it's his lighting and my lighting. And if he's, if it's a, a, uh, most good cameramen work from a single source, which is that if if this was the window, the heaviest light would be coming from behind us. And uh, whatever he would need for Phil, he can manage it without any sacrifice in quality. If I get up and walk around and so on and so forth, it becomes more difficult. Okay, if you remade Serpico and Dog Day today, how would they be different? Because those movies had such a 1970s flavor. I I, I don't know how to answer that because I was never aware of them having a a 1970s flavor. (laughs) Uh, I just did the movie. You know, it's that thing that happens, which is lovely, actually, uh, people see things in your movies that you never saw or even intended. Um, Paul and I were once at a discussion of the verdict and somebody pointed out something about the way he was dressed and the changes in his clothes as the picture progressed. I never even knew it. Mm. And it, it, it was not deliberate. The person was absolutely right. That's the lovely thing that happens when everything is working well. Then all of the mistakes, all of the uh, unthought of things uh, are working for you. Because finally, no matter which way you cut it, you've got to trust the unconscious. Or I have to. Maybe there are directors who can do it all from here, but I don't think so. If you could talk a bit about network, I guess like how much of that has to do with your own experience with television. Well, Patty and I both began in television. In fact, I think I did his first script on television. Mm. Pachayevsky, I'm talking about. Right. Not a bad writer. <laughs> God, I wish he'd lived to see George Bush. Uh, <laughs> uh, and what would have happened if he'd seen, if he'd, if he'd lived to see Bush? is what happened on that movie. People keep saying to me, oh, what a brilliant satire. And Patty and I always said, satire, hell, it's sheer reportage. Uh, The only thing that hasn't happened is that nobody's shot anybody. 
on, live, yet. And, uh, you know, give Fox another year of reality shows. And, uh, uh, Net Network's a wonderful movie, and uh, it's all Patty. Uh, I did some good work. I know when I do good work, but basically, uh, that's Patty's movie. It's um, so incisive and so human. That's what's amazing, is that in this whole thing about television and all the attitudes that, that, that are expressed in the movie, uh, how much else is in there? His Patty's whole feeling about... Uh, Black power, which was very prevalent in those days. Hmm. I mean, I think, maybe, for me, the funniest thing in that movie is that negotiation scene when they're negotiating for the, uh, for the uh, secondary rights <laughs> to, to the Revolutionary Army. He saw something. We, we carried it out all, very well because uh, Paddy Chayefsky is hardly a naturalistic writer or even a realistic writer. I mean, Marty was a totally naturalistic piece, but he left that a long time ago. And as his work went on, he became more and more stylized. And stylized, in his sense, meant that following what that story was about, that story was about corruption. And so what I did about it was I corrupted the camera. Uh, we start, first, the opening scene with... Bill and Peter on 6th Avenue and then into a bar and it's completely naturalistic photography I don't think we added a lamp uh, uh, put a 10k two blocks away just so you could see their faces on the street uh, the last scene when they're sitting around that office and Duval says well how do we get rid of this son of a bitch and if you look at it it's, it looks like, it was shot like, lit like, a Ford commercial. Hmm. Faces don't matter. Nothing matters. Just the look matters. Uh, slick. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, and that happened very gradually over the body of the movie. I was just happy to serve Patty on that movie. Oh, you know, we have one of your script supervisors in the audience. I don't know if she worked on this film. Martha Pinson? Martha, where are you? Hi, sweetheart. Okay, what do you do all day? When I'm not working, <laughs> uh, sleep a lot. Big sleeper. Uh, <laughs> cook, read. That's it. Hmm. What kind of books do you like to read? I haven't read... I'm reading Edgar Doctorow's book now, hmm. and it's the first fiction I've read in about 20 years. Really? I, yeah, I find myself going to nonfiction. Okay. How many scripts do you get offered versus how many you make, actually it, make? It's, it depends on whether your last picture was a hit. Uh, <laughs> if your last picture was a hit, you get a lot of scripts offered. Uh, if your last picture wasn't a hit, you get some scripts offered. If your last three pictures weren't a hit, you get a script offered. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the, I, I, I've been lucky, which I think you'll find anybody who's had a, uh, a good working career will constantly remind you and them of that word. The luck has a lot to do with it. Uh, also, because I'm not greedy, I don't hold out for a price or what have you. If I want to do it, I'll do it. 
And uh, it's not hard to find stuff you want to do. It really isn't. There's so much talent around. I don't know how many how many movies have I done, David. Do you know? I don't know the number, but it's like a, it's a, more than thirty or thirty or forty. Oh, it's more than forty. Forty, and it's and that, it was said and um, it was said even in the 1980s that you were at that time were the most prolific. You were you were making more films than any of your contemporaries from that period, from the 50s up to the 80s. That there was nobody else working at your level who had made as many films. I so. I, I think it's true. I don't know. <laughs> I, I I I think Woody works at a pretty heavy. That's clip. true. That's true. Uh, but other than Woody and myself, I don't know. People coddle themselves. And the, and of course your reputation, which I said before, that you come in, you know, you shoot a film ahead of ahead of schedule, and just about anybody who's worked with you has said that you know, always know exactly what you want, that you're incredibly fast and economical. Where do you think that came? Well, it comes from a very simple place, really. Uh, I was brought up in the theater and live television. Now, in both of those. You make your dramatic selection in advance. This is what it's going to be about. This is what we've got to direct it toward, aim it toward. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you can't go up to Boston on an out-of-town tryout on a play and say, let's see if it works this way. Right. Uh, you ha- you're committed. And so there's nothing wrong with the other way of working. God knows. Right. Uh, but I, my, my upbringing... My uh, my upbringing was just different. Uh, I shoot very little ratio. What do I shoot, Martha? About I, if I expose a hundred thousand feet, that's a lot for me, or a hundred and ten, which is nonsense, of course, because the m- the more prepared you are, the freer the actors will feel, <laughs> because they're secure and therefore they're open to whatever happens during the take. Uh, they don't feel they'll, ooh, I mustn't go in that place. Yeah, yeah go in that place, see what happens. Just to summarize what Martha said, you work more than twice as fast as most directors and you have more time for rehearsal. You, you, you're able to spend more time. And more time to sleep. <laughs> uh, That's the real goal. <laughs> <is to laughs> the, 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 uh, I, I think I shoot about 100, 120,000 feet. Uh, now a movie is about 12,000 feet. Now I mean expose. That's not even printing. I print maybe 40,000, 30,000. But there's nothing wrong with Willie Wyler's work <laughs> or George Stevens' work. And they would each shoot a minimum of a million two hundred thousand feet on a picture. <laughs> you did a great tribute at when you got your lifetime Oscar this year to all the directors that influenced you. Tell us about your movie viewing. I mean how much you know, we hear about Marty Scorsese always watching movies. I know Mar- yeah. Marty's crazy. I I, I <laughs> It can't be that good. <laughs> there can't be that much good work. Maybe he doesn't uh, sleep so much. Uh, I, that, for, that for sure. Uh, but do, you must watch. I, 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 I go a lot. I don't generally like to uh, go to screenings, except in the fall, uh, in, starting in the late fall as the theaters yeah. start to get very crowded. Right. Uh, I, I, I'll go to screenings. But uh, generally I go to theaters. Uh, we went last night to see uh, Capote, and um, good movie, good movie, uh, and uh, an unbelievable performance. Wow! Uh, but uh, I, I don't know what I do with my time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll take a few more questions and then let you go to 
go to sleep. Yeah. Over here. <laughs> I t- when I fall asleep, then you'll know oh, okay. it's time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Could you talk about your, how your political values have affected your choice of material? Uh, I've been, in the past, very politically active. I'm considerably left of center. And uh, yet, I don't consciously pick a, a movie on the basis of what it's about politically. Clearly, I'm open to be moved more by certain subject matters. Uh, when I do a picture like Daniel, there is an, an enormous political resonance in that, even though, to me, it isn't about politics at all. To me, it's about the price children pay for their parents' passion, which is true also for uh, running on empty. Hmm. Now, it's interesting, of course, that in both those movies, the parents are very left-wing. And that's because I'm a New Yorker and I've spent my life here on a political level, the most passionate um, people I've known have been left-wingers. If I lived in Kansas or Texas, they might be of another political persuasion. (laughs) But I think the same thing would apply. I would hate to be Jerry Falwell's kid (laughs) for any number of reasons. But uh, (laughs) but, uh, just on that basis, I'm sure the uh, children of right-wing people suffer as much as the, the passionately committed ones who, you know, or workaholics, or artists. That's really what those pictures are about. Bach may have had, what, 17 or 18 children. Uh, he was only paying attention to one thing. Two things. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he didn't sleep much either. He, no. No, I think he slept like a <laughs> bandit. <laughs> it must, you you uh, do obviously have an interest in the American system, the workings of the American mm. system, So, uh, because of your many movies about the police system, the trial system. Uh, you know, We use 12 Angry Men as a way to teach and get students to think about that. So it, I, I'm guessing this must be an interesting, difficult time for you to be living through. This. Well, I think... <laughs> I think for all of us. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I think all hell's breaking loose. I, uh, I'm an old man now, and, and uh, I think it's the most dangerous time I've lived in. Uh, and this, I've been through McCarthy and all that. Mm. This is worse. Mm. Uh, it's, uh, it's a terrifying time. Yeah. I can't give you anecdotes because there are none. There really are none. Uh, you know, work is very sacred. First of all, if I could, I wouldn't. I have no bad stories about people, actors I've worked with because I don't get involved with lunatics. And, uh, you know, we pretty well know who the crazies are. And uh, if you stay out of that, there's no reason why you shouldn't have a uh, swell time if, if you know what you're doing. The, the, uh, the reputation of actors as being difficult, whether it's Katie Hepburn or Marlon or what have you, it's usually, I've found, they just want somebody who knows their job as well as they know theirs. Uh, And if they don't have that, 
they feel, they get nervous. They get nervous, they get unhappy because, uh, well, I, I've told this story before, but, you know, Marlon used to very often test a director. In the first two days, he'd give you two, two takes, identical. <laughs> Not a hair different. And he'd listen for which one you printed. Hmm. Now, in one take, he was really working. And in the other take, he'd be what we call indicating, which is giving you the result without any real process going on inside. Mm. And he'd listen for what you printed. Mm. And if you printed the wrong one, you were fucked. <laughs> <laughs> you had it for the whole picture. Because he, he wouldn't trust you. Mm. And in a way, he's right. Because why should he pour that out to somebody who doesn't see it? It's very hard. It's very... I mean, when he works, it takes a lot out of him, as any actor. They are tired at the end of the day. Hmm. And uh, to pour that out to uh, a person who can't see it is very frustrating. Well, now we know why you've got so many great performances, because they know that you know what you're doing. I want to thank you. This was film school in an hour for everybody yeah, here, so we appreciate it. And I really want to thank you for being with us tonight. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.